Your profession is not what brings home your weekly paycheck. Your profession is what you're put here on earth to do, with such passion and such intensity that it becomes spiritual in calling. Vincent van Gogh Now entering the Phantasmagoric Oddities Emporium. Please stand by for quantum phase inversion. Welcome back, listener. As you've heard, I'm sure, 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 we've gotten a transmission from the uncharted, hearted, hearted realms from Paul. We're currently trying to figure out how to triangulate the signal origin. Unfortunately, the odd properties of the Poe make the electromagnetic spectrum act like a fluid around here. So, think of our receiver like the mouth of a river, and the signal like water molecules dropped into a tributary somewhere further up upstream. But because of the turbulent behavior of your behavior of the signal and of the PO, it is near, impo- near, impo- near impossible to locate an exact origin. Please come with me down to the conference room. Conference conference room. Step into the side to side, and I'll meet you down there. Down there. As a hologram, I am multitasking, and I am already 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 there now. Initiating the side to side transport. Origin of destination. Conference room. Ugh, you're an idiot. You're thinking three dimensionally. It's a ten-dimensional system. Well, it's actually eleven if you take into account uh, M theory. Just kind of throwing that out there. The Reynolds number, the flow of a velocity, is a constant at the speed of light. Ah, Peter, you're not listening to me. With all the areas opened up in the back rooms here, we've created a lot of drag. And when it comes to signal flow, that definitely affects it. Dr. Lilililitu is correct. You may be able to move around unimpeded between these rooms. The stabilizers that enable that movement does employ an electromagnetic buffer in order to prevent accidental radiation exposure. What, versus in purpose? Yeah, right. So, uh, what exactly are we supposed to do with that, man? You know, I mean, he's lost in there. We gotta try to figure out how to get him back. If you can narrow down how how, how the signal crossed the levels, perhaps we can isolate, perhaps we can isolate the conical flow of the specific dimension and time of origin. With luck, 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 we could be working with hey, listen, wall-bounded hey, flow me. based on the buffers. Now, I'm sure you really wanted to hang around and listen to those eggheads banter about fluid dynamics applied to electromagnetic spectrum in a quantum state to reverse triangulate a radio signal inside a quantum variable control. <laughs> Basically, magnetohydrodynamics is applied to a quantum turbulent state. Bunch of fancy words, right? Hell, I fell asleep in there until you showed up. Tell you what, follow me down to the Impressionist Wing. There's a piece down there that demonstrates turbulence without all the technical mumbo-jumbo. Humanity's got to know its limitations, you know? Please enter destination. Well, hey, rather than doing the side-to-side, let's take a walk down there. It's not far. Transport canceled. Figure we could use the exercise anyway. It's not like it's a mile down a railroad track or nothing. Now, you ever look down at moving water, and you see how sometimes it backflows around a rock or spirals around in spot? Theo and Jade Lynn Apodaca. That's an example Theo of Theo and Jade Lynn Apodaca. Now, please meet your parents in the house. So you took a stick and you dropped it into a very precise Thank spot you. upstream. Now repeat that same experiment nine more times. When you're done, no matter how precise you were putting the stick into the water, 
where you catch a stick will most likely be in 10 different places, depending on factors such as, you know, overall distance, width of the river, things like that. Turbulence is an enigma of mathematics. Sure, they do pretty good. I mean, after all, they have to factor that in for airplanes. Think about that. Next time you're riding around in one of them tin cans, you're working with experimental mathematics. Enjoy. Now, there was this mathematician, uh, what was his name again? Uh, Kolmogorov. That's right, it was Kolmogorov. Now, this bloke, beginning in 1941, came pretty damn close to precisely calculating turbulence and reducing it to a very quote-unquote simple equation, I guess. Energy in a turbulent fluid length, R, varies in proportion to the three-fifths power over R. Now, turbulence is more associated with fluid dynamics, even lies affected by it, in the form of luminance. Now, I know what you're thinking. Donnie, why are you telling me this? I thought you were taking me down the Impressionist wing. Didn't you just say we were getting out of here because this stuff was boring? And why are you talking about Andre Chikatilo? Well, last, his name was Andrew Kolomogorov. Third, yes, I was falling asleep. Second, here we are. First, it'll all make sense in a bit. Now, these Impressionists, they weren't some superhero trope, but some might consider them that in an idyllic amalgamation of revolutionary artists who experimented with color to try to convey movement. The blending of colors, strokes, contrasting light, motion created by color. Monet's painting, Garden at Sente Adresse, may not actually be considered an Impressionist work of art. However, it does display the budding use of perspective, light, and color implied in motion, which, when you relax looking at it, the water, the flags, even the flowers seem to move. And Edvard Munch, you know his painting, The Scream? It definitely displayed motion in long, deliberate, and wide strokes. But there was no one who did it better than the maker of this painting. Hours before he finally passed, Theo van Gogh arrived in Auvergne, expecting to find his brother dead. Theo found his brother Vincent sitting upright, smoking a pipe, a couple of days earlier, Vincent had been admitted to the hospital for shooting himself in the chest. The bullet missed his heart, but it was nonetheless fatal. Yet this possibly wasn't his first attempt to end his life. Feeling himself a failure, having only sold just one painting in almost ten years of his career of painting, he wandered out. The man himself was the epitome of turbulence. Mango struggled as an artist in the city of Arles, south of France. He had hoped to start a new artist community down there. Featuring his friend Paul Gauguin, the two had a turbulent relationship. Gauguin often tried to get Vincent to reach more into his imagination, paint objects without needing to look at them. Vincent, always a diligent worker, hopped on Gauguin for not being more dedicated to the craft, for not pumping out more art. After a rather raucous argument, Paul Gauguin stormed out of the little yellow house that they shared on December 23rd, 1888. It was about 11 p.m. Paul heard steps coming up behind him. He pivoted around to find a wild-eyed Vincent holding an open razor. The two stared at each other for a moment. Long moment. Before Vincent turned around and ran away into the night. Gauguin kind of figured, eh, it might be a good idea to sleep somewhere else tonight. The next day, figuring Vincent had had enough time to sleep it off, Paul arrived at the little yellow house to check on his turbulent friend, but only to find a bloody Vincent missing part of his ear. That was after their confrontation in the alley. Vincent had arrived at a local brothel, presented a gift to a lady of the north named Rachel, telling her, keep this object carefully. The gift being his severed ear. 
It took a week of delirium and seizures before the doctors knew that he would survive the blood loss and the trauma. Two weeks after the disearing, he was allowed to return home to his little yellow house. His empty little house. Gokan left. Now it's impossible to overstate the emptiness that Vincent Van Gogh felt. His closest brother, Theo, had been there at the hospital while Vincent recovered, but he had work in Paris he needed to return to. Vincent had driven his best friend Paul away, another close friend, a postman named Josef Roulan, someone whom he had painted every member of the family of. He was moving away. All he had now was nature and his paintings. Over time, his madness would start to overtake him. He found clarity in his painting, focus. But when he would stop, the voices would return, the paranoia that someone was trying to poison him. All the while holding brushes heavy with lead paint in his mouth, taking sips of turpentine. When one's struggling with mental illness, this is probably high on the list of shit you probably shouldn't be doing. Eventually, over time, his madness started to become more and more out of control. Eventually, even the townsfolk turned on him. All he wanted to do was leave. He had heard of an asylum, Sol Rémy de Provence, and he had his brother Theo help check him in. Theo arranged for two rooms, sword by sword, a living quarters and a studio for Vincent. Now Theo had always been there for Vincent. When Vincent was 27, he considered himself a failure. Everything he had tried, he seemed to fail at. With no formal training, only armed with sketching that he had learned from his mother, he set out to become an artist. And the odds were completely stacked against him. But Theo, who was a respected art dealer, agreed to support his brother financially in his pursuit of his artistic expression. Theo had seen Vincent's work. He believed in him. At the age of 28, while at the Hague, the center of the Dutch art movement, he made his first painting, which proved beyond all shadow of a doubt that he truly was a painter. After a toward love affair with a prostitute, Klausina Hornick, whom he called Scene, Vincent struck out on the open road, painting landscapes. And whatever he saw, and make no mistake, he loved her. She was just bad news for him, and they both knew it. His first true masterpiece came wrong after that. It was named Potato Eaters. Now it's a truly exquisite painting. It's a dark cottage, illuminated by a single gas lamp suspended from the roof over a table, which is surrounded by five salt-of-the-earth kind of people. People that you could see work this land, earn this food, their features accentuated by the shadows. To him, these were true people. They earned their keep. He was always on the search for the divine. However, with the Impressionist movement going hot and heavy in Paris, the grays and blacks and other dark tones used by the Dutch artists just were not gonna fly. Paris wanted color. The only way that Vincent figured that he'd ever be able to truly understand what's happening in Paris is to go there. So Vincent arrived in Paris, more or less uninvited, to stay with his brother. Bonjour, mon frère. Your brother Vincent is here. Ah, Vincent, I wasn't expecting you. Well, I did write you, uh, like 40 times, and I wanted to come. And you didn't say no, so here I am. Nope, I, I suppose I did not. I'll let Johanna know and to study these new artists. And Vincent was blown away about how color interacted. Here he met regularly with impressionists who demonstrated such incredible mastery of color, such as Monet, Lautrec, Pizarro, to name a few. However, Vincent continuously alienated the artists. Most would only paint when the sun was out. Some would only paint when they felt like it. Having a stern Dutch work ethic, Vincent believed you worked from sun up to sundown. He believed that they lacked demonstration of their convictions. 
Oftentimes, his brother Theo would have to step in and moderate, let the others know, while fiery, his brother does have the best of intentions, and it's truly a good heart. Even though he'd pissed everybody off he ever came across, everyone still respected him. Every one of them painted a picture of him at one point or another. Now, don't get that wrong. Models were expensive, so a lot of times, painters would paint each other, save money, a bit of practicality, with a bit of respect. Vincent had moved to the small town of Arl because he'd been inspired by Japanese art, and while he couldn't afford to move to Japan itself, but he had heard through Lautrec that the light down there was just the same as Japan. Eventually, Paul Gauguin moved down there to help Vincent out. Things went well for a month or two, at least up until that night in December of 88. In 1869, when Vincent was 15, his family ran into a bit of financial trouble. He went back to work for his uncle, who worked for the Hag, as a respected art dealer for a group of the company. It was here that Vincent developed an appreciation for art, understanding of perspective, light, composition. While here, he had learned three languages, French, English, and German, on top of his native Dutch, which was useful, very useful in the art trade. He was transferred to a London gallery in 1873. Unfortunately, rather than keeping his mind on his job, he had his mind on the landlady's daughter. After the girl told him she was already engaged, he wouldn't let it drop. Like, total creeper level. Well, the landlady, she had about enough of his horse shit and told him to kick rocks, find lodging elsewhere. And if you think that a 20-year-old artist took that very maturely, I venture to guess you've never known a 20-year-old artist. As he moved, one could say uh, he went a little ape shit. Vincent was an avid reader. He had collected so many books over his lifetime. In a fit of rage, he threw them all out. But one, his Bible. Over time, his disdain for humanity seeped into his work life. Two days after he turned 23, he was fired from a family job nonetheless. He took a job as a minister. He taught at a local boys' school and preached to the congregation. His sermons often followed the theme that the quest of God is a long and lonely one. He could have taken his career further, but he was refused admittance to the School of Theology in Amsterdam because he figured learning Latin was a waste of time. He wanted to serve the poor. And the poor don't speak a dead language. He was again refused ordination in Belgium for his stubbornness. But determined to preach, to follow his calling, Vincent went to a small coal town in the south of Belgium during the winter time. This was the kind of place that you sent priests as a punishment. He probably lived his life more purely than most other priests ever have. He offered this small hut to a sick woman. He slept on the floor with other miners. He lived and worked with them as one of them. It was even rumored that he was called the Christ of the coal mines. But the church wasn't having any of that. Nope, not at all. Nope, we are not having it. The church does not approve. One shan't be so... filthy while spreading the word of the Lord. They figured that a man of God should be above such things, be much cleaner. So they kicked him out of the priesthood at the age of 27. But in those four years, Vincent continued to draw. So he decided to take a leap, try to become an artist. But first, he needed to chase down another love interest, his own cousin, Kate. 
Now, Vincent always had a thing for older women, especially the damsel in distress. And his cousin Kate had recently lost her husband and was staying with the Van Goghs when Vincent finally mustered up the courage and proclaimed his love for her and said that they should get married. My dearest Kate, I love you with all of my heart. It pains me to see you like this. Oh, thank you, Vincent. I love you too. Great. Let's get married. Um, what? Are you out of your mind? My husband just died. Right. What better way to feel better than just be moving on? It'll be fine. Trust me. Uh, yeah, seriously. You need to get away from me, you little freak. No, no, no. It's okay. Einstein married his cousin. Yeah, I don't even know who that is. He'll be famous in about 40 years. For relative stuff. Kate didn't take too well with this. She ended up running home, but Vincent wasn't taking no for an answer. Vincent showed up at her place. She hid in another room while the rest of her family entertained Vince. Vincent then stuck his hand into the flame of a lamp and said, Let me speak to her as long as I can hold my hand here. Yeah, yeah, get your hand out of there, you little weirdo. Go on, get, scoop, get out of here. Well, he didn't end up speaking to her. They blew out the lamp and kicked his ass out again. Uh, the broken-hearted artist. He had always craved love. His mother was cold and distant, yet still instilled in him a love for nature and appreciation for drawing. His father, minister, helped influence him in his pursuit of God and self-atonement and how to search for the divine. The responsibility to leave school to help his family instilled a strong desire for family and a dedicated work ethic. The opportunity to land a job as an art dealer rather than a ditch digger enabled him to gain fluentness in four languages and an understanding of art not afforded the most. His turbulent life drove him in search of finding the hidden message of God in the world around him. His eccentricities, while viewed by others at the time as madness, may have been a touch of the divine. Vincent once said after creating this piece here, just as we take a train to Terrace or Renoir, we take death to a star. In 2004, while observing distant star formation using the Hubble telescope, astronomers noticed that the eddies of light and dust particles looked remarkably similar to something they'd seen before, Vincent van Gogh's starry night. Once this was brought to the attention of other astronomers, many of van Gogh's works were digitized and compared to these distant observations. The thing that the scientists had noticed was that van Gogh's use of color to depict light radiance when digitized down pixel for pixel matches Kolomakrov's equations for turbulence. Another good way to see turbulence in nature would be to look at Jupiter, the way the gases all swirl around and create little eddies, each larger eddy creating a matching set of smaller and then smaller and smaller and so on. Van Gogh, in his most turbulent moments, was able to express one of the most fundamental ways that we perceive light with quick and deliberate brushstrokes. In his calmer days, his paintings didn't seem to express these same arcs, these same eddies that he would create in his most turbulent times. His madness was able to paint one of the most complicated things known in mathematical physics today. Now, let's take a brief moment here and take a look at Story Night. Now, one of the first things that strikes me about this is the big wave set against the dark blue background. Look familiar? You know that painting, The Great Wave by Akase, the Japanese painting of the tsunami. It was a major influence, among other influences found around here, just like Paul Gauguin. Not exactly in style, 
explain the fact that most of this was painted from memory. He couldn't paint at night, so he had to remember what he viewed at night and then paint it during the day. Now this painting, thick with brush strokes. Even some paint applied like he was smearing butter. Thick globs of paint. Even some that was just squeezed right directly from the tube. You could see the contrasting colors. Sunflower yellow on the deep indigo. Another influence from artists who created color theory. By using complementary colors to make the subject stand out against the background. Or to hide behind it. Much like Apollo slays the dragon. And Delacroix's painting that hangs in the ceiling of the Louvre. That's how you pronounce it, Cummins. Louvre. Now, as I said, the influence of Gauguin can be seen, and that the village in the foreground was actually on the opposite side of the asylum from which the window this view was taken. Far fewer buildings than the actual village, and the windows of some of the buildings are illuminated by impossibly bright lamps. They serve as a balance to the brightness of the stars. Now, as of the time that this was created, humans thought the Milky Way was the only galaxy in the universe. However, the wave at Starry Night looks remarkably similar to the spiral galaxy M51. Now, the galaxy was sketched by Lord Ross in 1851, but at the time it was thought to only be a cluster of stars, like a nebula, just like Andromeda was thought to be a nebula, up until Edwin Hubble came along. Well, we ain't the center of the universe anymore. Now, this painting was just one of over 2,100 created. He wasn't exactly unknown. Other painters knew of him and admired him. But his demons took him before he could ever see what he had done. He invented a new way to paint, to see light. When he let go of his imagination, he was a racehorse that knew no speed limit. Most of his paintings were done in just hours. His irises, one of the first ones he painted at Sol Remy, he had painted in just three hours. Some candles just burn too fast and too bright for this world. Now we've been talking about turbulence. And clearly this man had his turbulent life. But I'll bet there's something you didn't know. Now look off to the side there. Is that pair of tombstones over there? That first one. That first one would haunt Vincent all of his days. The name on that tombstone? Vincent Van Gogh was born March 30th, 1853, to Theodorus Van Gogh, a Dutch minister from a Reformed church, and Anna Cornelia Corbettus, a housewife. Anna taught all her children to draw and shared with them an appreciation of nature, yet Vincent was doomed from the start. He would often take long walks and walk past the parish cemetery. In that cemetery, there was one grave marker that always called him. He would go and look at it. The etching on that marker, Vincent Willem Van Gogh, died March 1852. You see, Vincent wasn't the first one to carry that name. Precisely one year before, he had an older brother born, also named Vincent Willem. However, the baby was stillborn. When Vincent too was born, his mother never really fully recovered. She always moaned for the loss of that stillborn child. Somehow, that haunted Vincent his whole life. Now, if you're thinking getting named after a sibling who died might kind of screw you up, eh, you're probably right. Now, while I pointed out here that there's two tombstones, let's take a look at that second tombstone right there. Yeah, that one there that says Salvador Dali. 
1903. As Salvador Dali was 22 months old when he died. But the Dali that we know, he was born nine months after. That's a story for another day. Let's get out of here. Well, I definitely want to thank you for coming by, listener. It was definitely a pleasure to have you. I'm glad that we got a chance to share the oddity of a story night together. Hope maybe you can walk away with a little bit of a deeper perspective on artwork or maybe turbulence. Who knows? I know I'm walking away with something. We definitely need a Dutch accent around here. Anyway, we here at the Poe just want to thank all of you listeners for coming by and giving us a listen. Remember to share this weird little thing with folks if you actually don't hate it so bad, alright? Love you guys. Take care of yourselves, alright now? We'll see you next time. Now exiting the Phantasmagoric Oddities Emporium. Have a nice day. It'll be fine. Trust me.